Money FM 89.3. Best of drive time. Culture Club. Money FM 89.3. It is drive time with Elliot Danka, Timothy Goen, Tian Tian. Time now for Culture Club. Of course, uh, we all know the cost of living has been on the rise. Well, in fact, recent reports, Elliot, have shown that core inflation for the whole of 2022 averaged 4.1%. That is higher than the figure of 0.9% the year before in 2021. So naturally, consumers are now on the hunt for great food that'll be gentle on their wallets. And to address this, Delish Brands have recently conducted a thorough review of its entire supply chain to and internal processes, enabling them to substantially reduce prices across all its fat burger outlets. So how they managed to do so, we will find out. Mo Ibrahim, the CEO and founder of Delish Brands, is on the line with us. Mo, good evening. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Got a feeling I might get hungry after this conversation. <laughs> I hope so. That's the plan. Tell us a little bit about Delish. So Delish Brands is a business that I started a few years ago. We take cool, trendy Western restaurant brands. We adapt them for the halal consumer and launch them here uh, in Singapore. So we've got four brands under the portfolio right now. Fat Burger, obviously the iconic burger joint from Los Angeles was the first brand that we bought to Singapore. We followed that up with 800 Degrees, wood-fired pizza. So it's a cool brand out of L.A. Mm. Blimpy is a sub shop um, on the East Coast of the U.S. It's very popular and competes with Subway, well, predominantly on the East Coast. And I grew up in the same neighborhood where the founders are from. So it's a bit of a nostalgic brand for me. And then finally, we've launched our own in-house brand called Buttermilk, which is a fried chicken and waffle concept. And uh, that's our own original concept. And we launched that a few months ago, and it's doing quite well. Okay, well, I have to recuse myself from this interview now. I own a Subway <laughs> franchise. Fight! So uh, <laughs> you, you can always you can always flip to, and become a blimpy. Wow! We can talk later. <laughs> so here's the question for you, and we all know this: the cost of food has gone up significantly for many of us in the FNB industry. So, what have you guys done to 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 manage this and even uh, uh, reduce the prices? The first thing we did is we literally just shopped around and went to every single one of our suppliers. Mm -hmm. and said, hey, listen, we need better prices. These prices are too high, and we haggled. And so that saved us a bunch of money right off the bat. And we literally looked at every single line item and said, okay, who else is selling this product in the market? Because the last time we did that was a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And we found a whole bunch of new entrants into the market, new partners to work with, new and innovative products. So we were able to replace a lot of the SKUs, a lot of the items that we bring in in terms of ingredients Mm -hmm. with, in some cases, better quality stuff at cheaper prices. And that's just something we're just going to continue to double down and focus on. It's rewarded us really well um, and it's enabled us to pass all those. So all that money that we saved, we pass it straight through to the customer and we're able to lower our prices between 10 to 30% on average across the menu. Okay, so if you are bringing in brands and making them uh, halal, Mo, uh, it is in my understanding that halal food suppliers are limited in the in in this market at least. So it, isn't it harder to find more suppliers? So there's a lot of halal food suppliers and halal as a, as a food category is growing quite quickly. And you're seeing a lot of brands, whether you realize it or not, actually becoming halal behind mm-hmm. the scenes, even though they're not announcing it for one reason or another. But the amount of halal suppliers is increasing. The problem is for certain ingredients, there could be only one or two suppliers. For example, things like pickles and relish and some of the smaller type ingredients, yeah, our choices are very limited in terms of who we can buy from. And, and that creates lots of 
challenges and often last minute challenges where the supplier says, hey, I'm out of pickles today and you're a bit stuck. So you've mm-hmm. got to move quickly and figure that out. Is this a market research team? <laughs> yeah, I'm taking down <laughs> notes as well. Mo. <laughs> but Mo, you talk about giving back savings to customers. It amounts for nothing if you're not connecting and communicating with them. We understand you use TikTok as a means uh, to connect with your customers. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So if you look at the brands historically that have done well with respect to consumers, it's where the founder is up front and center communicating to the customer. So you look at guys like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Elon Musk or Richard Branson, you know, they're there selling their brand. So as a consumer facing brand, I said, this is something that I've got to do. I've got to be in front of my customers so they know who they're buying from and why we're doing the things that we're doing. And so when I looked around and said, what medium, what platform makes the most sense to me, TikTok was obvious because I don't think you're going to be able to reach any consumer base as quickly and as wide as you can uh, on any other platform other than TikTok. I think it just broke marketing. It's changed the rules of the game. So that's why, yeah, I decided to go online and use TikTok and it's been phenomenal. The amount of comments we get on every single post is something that really surprised me. I mean, good comments, bad comments, but we're learning so much. I'd say as a CEO, I'm communicating with more customers every single day than many others out there. And now I think I remembered seeing you on TikTok <laughs> talking about something. I don't recall what it is, but yes, your voice and now that you're talking about this. So it is good to be transparent with the people you're communicating with, your customers, right? And yet we do know that in some more legacy brands, for example, that it is quite restrictive as to how you can use your brand and how you communicate without you know, official approval from whoever your franchisees are back in the United States. Right. So if you take a look at my TikTok channel, it's really Mo Ibrahim's TikTok channel so where I talk about person. my businesses. Yeah, it's me as a person. Mm. I think we're not talking on behalf of the brand. And, and that's a really important point that you brought up because customers don't want to buy from brands. They don't want to listen from brands. Customers want to, you know, engage with people. They want to engage with a person. Mm-hmm. And that's why we made the decision. I made the decision to go out personally and put myself out there rather than kind of, you know, put the, the brand mask on and communicate that way. I, I don't think that works. And honestly, I think the algorithm, the TikTok algorithm lately, I think it penalizes people who try and do it that way. It's just not what TikTok wants. I knew someone who used to work for a bank and this person had to manage one of the big bosses LinkedIn accounts. So this person was, you know, being the voice for this upper management. In your opinion, does this idea of being a face for the brand extend to any other genre, any other type of business? What are your thoughts on this? I think everybody should consider their personal brand and how they want to position themselves in terms of how the outside world views them, especially if you're an entrepreneur. I mean, if you're an entrepreneur and you've got a consumer facing brand today and you're not comfortable mm-hmm. putting yourself out there, getting scrutinized, getting that instant feedback, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage. Your competitive edge is listening to your customer on a real time basis and getting that instant feedback, even if it hurts your feelings. Yeah. I mean, there's truth in some of those comments and the quicker you have access to that information, you're just going to be able to run a better business at the end of the day. It's just smart business. And Mo, it is true that when people give you feedback, good or bad, especially the bad ones, it's because they're giving you a chance, right? Mm. 
Yeah, yeah if, they, if they didn't care, they wouldn't comment at all, right? So you're only worth talking about if you're worth being talked about, right? Mm-hmm. So that you know, so whether the comment is good or bad, I think just kind of ignore the noise. Just the fact that people are talking about you is a net positive. And the fact that there are people who like you and dislike you is great because it, it, the fact that people dislike you is great because it gives a chance to the people who like you to come up and voice their opinion as well. So mm-hmm. having people who dislike what you're saying or disagree or have a different viewpoint, that's actually a really good thing and it scares a lot of people off from going into social media and putting themselves out there but but that's actually great because mm. it helps your real customer rise to the surface and you can identify them that much faster. Okay, going back to pricing of food, I'm not sure if your brands have increased prices or not since the higher inflation we've been experiencing the past two years but I just want to bring this up. There is a restaurant in Vancouver and this uh, restaurant owner posted a poster in fact in front of his restaurant to break down the cost of why his cheeseburger will cost a customer $21.50. And at the bottom of it, his profit for this burger is $1.25. I mean, this is a very small profit that many people don't recognize that in the F&B industry is what we have to live with in many cases. I think a lot of people don't realize that most of the restaurants here in Singapore actually lose money. You know, running a restaurant is not a way to get rich. You don't see a lot of you know, restaurant owners driving Lamborghinis. I am going to agree with you 200% right? there. You're, you're a Subway franchisee. You know, there's very little margin. The mm-hmm. only way you can make money in this business is if you have like a great location and it ends up being a golden goose. Or what we're looking to do is, so I've created a new concept called buttermilk, which is fried chicken and waffles. And mm-hmm. it's at a price point and we put it in food courts to limit the capex that we spend on building a restaurant trying to get you know a little bit of margin out of it not big margin a little bit of margin and the only way you really make money in the FMB space is through scale not through one restaurant it's 50 restaurants and people don't get that so your, your average restaurant and if your goal is to launch one or two or three restaurants, don't even bother entering the space. Your chances of failing are like 95%. You need to have the mindset that I'm going to launch a prototype. And if it works, I'm going to figure out how to scale to 100. That's the only way to succeed long term in F&B. So when you look at this post-COVID world that we're trying to get into right now, what are some of the main challenges that you're trying to tackle? So as a restaurant owner here in Singapore, the, the two big expenses and the challenges are rental costs and labor. I mean, that, those are the two big ones. In, in the U.S., if you open a restaurant, you're paying 8% of your revenue in terms of rent. That's average. Mm-hmm. If you pay 10 to 12%, it's crazy. Here in Singapore, you're paying 20 to 25%. And mm-hmm. I'm in a group chat with 500 other retail owners. Yeah. 80% of them say they're paying upward to 40% of their revenue in terms of rent which makes I mean, it harder for you to open up more restaurant and make a, <laughs> you know, scale up your business. Absolutely. I mean, the big chains and the big boys can do it. They can afford to lose money in certain locations because their strategy is to create a moat to keep everybody else out. Mm. But the small independent restaurant owner, you know, it's very hard for them to survive long term at these rentals and these manpower restrictions. There's a lot stacked against them at this point in time, against even companies. Of our, we've got almost 12 locations and mm. it's still challenging for us. We're, 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 we're still we're still a small guy. So when it comes to manpower challenges, Mo, and we're all facing the same issue, regardless of what industry, but I think more acutely in the F&B and hospitality industry, do you have any solutions that you can suggest to policymakers, perhaps? 
I think the whole quota system is is a little bit broken when it comes to F&B. And obviously the government's got its own rationale for doing the things mm-hmm. that they're doing. But as a representative of the average restaurant here in Singapore, it's hard. It creates is. unnecessary challenges. We can't keep skilling up all of our workers. I mean, you know, we need dishwashers. If we keep skilling up our dishwashers, there's only going to be left to wash the dishes. <laughs> and um, we so can't automate everything either. I can't put a robot back there doing the dishes. Um, it, it just doesn't work. So the way that we've tackled it, and I think the the right way to do it is there's a knee-jerk reaction for a lot of restaurant owners to put up these big signs in front of their restaurants saying, you know, huge salaries, sign-on bonuses. I think that's the wrong approach because mm-hmm. it just keeps driving the price up on everybody. Mm-hmm. What we do and what we try to communicate with our staff is, hey, you can have a career here. There's such a lack of FMB professionals. Yeah, true, you're starting off in a low-end job, but the chances of you becoming a manager, a regional manager, mm-hmm. a director within the next three months, six months, 12 months, you're going to move up so much faster in this industry because there's such a lack of talent that you can make a real career out of this and make good money if you just put in the initial legwork. You know, there's a lot of upside and a lot of upside potential. So we communicate that to our staff, and I think we, we have a lot better staff retention as a result. And so one of the ways to combat, you know, all these, you know, the, 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 the labor crunch is to retain the guys you already have. You know, just get more out of them, and, and we focus on that. And to make them think there is a future in the FNB industry for everyone. <laughs> If you're into it. Yeah, the reality is there is. There's such a lack of good managers out there that you can really have a good career here. And then you can take that career internationally because the shortage is global. It's here in Singapore. Robot doing a dishwashing might get electrocuted. <laughs> I don't know, this is uh, what I was thinking of. Gosh, uh, some things need the human touch. Absolutely. I've been speaking, uh, this is why I argue with my wife about the dishwasher. <laughs> I rather do dishes myself, but that's my own opinion. Uh, Mo Ibrahim, the CEO and founder of Delish Brands, on the line with us. Mo, appreciate your time this afternoon. You take and have a great Thursday ahead. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.